Good morning. I got a question for you. Have you ever taken a test, and as soon as you turned in the test, you just, you knew, you bombed it? Or take it, okay, I hear by a few laughs, some of you guys are resonating with me. The scholars in the room are like, no, we don't know what you're talking about. But um, I remember I took this test in college, and it was really hard. And it was uh, one of the hardest, one of the worst grades I got in, in college, and it was in philosophy. And as the weeks were leading up to the exam, I... I'll never forget this because it was so stressful because I knew the closer and closer we got, the less and less I was actually ready for this exam. It was a very hard exam. And um, as, as we were getting ready, I increased my study efforts, right? So I, I, I added more time to my studying. I took more notes. I paid more attention in class. I sat like right in the front row. Um, I remember I joined all the study groups. I created my own study group. Um, I rewrote my notes. In fact, one of the things I did was I, I drew little cartoon sketches of all the philosophers with the things that they said and the things I needed to know. And I remember um, I drew like cartoon sketches of our professor and just was like, I need to somehow like get this into my brain because it is so hard. This is not an easy exam. And I remember the night before the exam, I was up so late studying. I mean, I took a coffee, then I took a Red Bull, then I had another coffee, um, and I want to probably a bunch of glasses of water, which were probably more helpful than anything. And so I, I stayed up so late just studying for this exam. The morning of the exam comes, um, and... <laughs> I, I overslept my alarm by, and, and I, I slept 30 minutes into the beginning of the exam. Oh, and I was, I can, I, I have never gotten ready so fast in my life. I sprang out of my bed into my clothes on the way down and just bolted out the door. And I was like so mad at myself. And I'm just like yelling at myself and my roommate. It's like, oh, grace, grace. And I was like, okay, we'll see. And I just like booked it. And I literally, I woke up from waking up to getting to the class was five minutes. Um, it was just lightning speed. And I got there and it's so embarrassing because like everyone's mid-exam and I'm like on the, at the door. And so I talked to him, very, very scholastic academic professor. And I was like, please, I overslept my alarm studying last night. And I just, I didn't wake up this morning. And he gave me grace. It was amazing. He, uh, he let me take the exam in the library for the next hour, which was so, so gracious of him. Um, but I was sweating the whole exam because not only is, am I not going to get any favor from him if there's like a, you know, if I get a grade that's on the line, but the exam, I'm like, I don't know these questions. Um, come time to get our exams back the next week. Best I remember, I got a 32% on that. I might be exaggerating. It might have been a 29. I don't remember. It was in that, but I do remember this. The highest grade in the class was in the 40%. It was a very hard test. And so, like, obviously, it didn't really help, though. I mean, he, he gave everybody a 50% curve, which was insane. You're like, make your test easier. But he gave everybody a 50% curve, which, you know, put me somewhere in, like, the 80s or something. So I didn't, like, fail. But it didn't help me feel better because here's the thing. A test is designed to reveal has become true about you. That's the point of a test. It's actually to reveal what has over time 
slowly become true about you. And not only did I fail, what was true about me was I failed to prepare for the, anticipate the test that day, but I failed to prepare properly for the material that was going to be on the exam. And it made me cry my eyes out. And what had become true about me was that I didn't increase my knowledge of classical philosophy that much at all. See, a test in school is designed to reveal what has become true about me over time. And that's why we give tests to kids in school, right? Because we're like, hey, we want what's true about you to increase in knowledge over time. So we're going to like let you know that there's a test coming up. And similarly, God will give you tests in your faith. God gives us tests in our faith. But unlike those in school, God's tests are designed to reveal what's already been true about God. A test in school is designed to reveal what's becoming true about us. God's tests of our faith are designed to reveal what's already true about God. He wants our lives to be the display to the watching world of who he is and what he's like. And so he gives us tests to bring that out of us. Last week, I talked about the sanity of insane faith. And we, we looked specifically about the object of insane faith, the eternally reliable, always trustworthy, um, powerfully capable God that we serve. And, and we saw, um, as, as we looked at the life of Abraham, we saw what the sanity of insane faith looks like. And so we, we said that faith is not holding on to my hopes. Faith is pursuing God's promise. So last week we talked about the object of insane faith. This week I want to talk about the opportunity for insane faith. This week is about faith for the things that God has spoken that I don't quite understand. And what I want to do is answer the question, what will you do with the faith you've been given? Right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talks about how faith is a gift from God to us. And actually Romans 12, 3 says each one of you has been given a different measure of faith. You've been given faith by God at a certain measure, but what are you going to do with that? What will the world see when your faith is tested. And so today's message, what I want to call today's message, if you're taking notes, which I highly recommend, it really, it's not for my sake, it's going to help you remember uh, what God is writing on your heart. My message is, say I won't. Say I won't. It is a bold statement of faith that answers the test of faith, that responds to the doubting of God's calling with this faith-filled cry, say I won't. I know that this is a test. I know that this is uncomfortable. No, I don't know all the answers, but I do know my God, and I do know what he's calling me to do, and I will live by faith. Say I won't. That's what we're talking about this morning. And so what I want to do this morning is help you anticipate the test and pass. I want to help you pass the test of your faith. And to do that, we're going to jump back into Abraham's story. We're going to swim around a little bit, but the reason that I want to spend more time in the story of God's activity in Abraham's life is because I want you to see how much God wants to demonstrate his glory and his goodness in your life, in our lives together as we move outside of our understanding to remain within his calling. 
And to do that, I want to think about the way that the Bible shows God interacting with his creation. So if you are with that, go ahead and uh, join me in prayer. We're going to ask God to speak to us this morning as we open our hearts to him. God, I, I fully recognize this morning that I have absolutely no power or capability to change a human heart. I don't have the power to give faith. Only you do. And so I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would fill up our measure of faith that you would sweep through here with your Holy Spirit and, and increase our faith. Give us faith to believe what you say and to move where you're calling us to go. God, I pray that we would not be held back by cynicism. That we would not be hindered by fear. That we would not be held up by our own pride or selfishness or the things that we're clutching to. God, help us to see you as bigger and to trust you. For those of us here who just need the assurance that you can, God, I pray that you would comfort us with that. For those of us here who, who need the conviction that you can, but you're waiting for us to move, I pray that you, would, that you would kindly and gently kick us in the butt. Lord, I, I, I ask not just because I want... I ask not because I want a power move here, God. I ask because I believe this, that your will of our lives is so much better for us. Like God, I pray that you would help us to accept that and to hear you speak and to give you our lives. Amen. God's interaction with humankind, it all starts... It all starts with God creating this beautiful world and then sharing it with his creation. Right? As he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then he tells them there is one tree that they can't eat from. It's going to lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This is key because it's a test. Now, you might be asking, isn't it cruel of God to test his creation? Uh, not all tests are bad about this. Let's say that there's a king who invites you to fulfill a royal task. And so he gives you an opportunity to step through this moment and say, I will fulfill this royal task. There's this thing I'm asking you to do. It's going to cause you to perform a certain action. And I want to see... If you will prove yourself faithful to rule with me with wisdom. So I'm going to give you one task to do to see if you are trustworthy to rule with me. To serve with me. But let's say also. So first of all, this test is not just a trial. It's an opportunity. Would you not agree? It's an opportunity to move into partnership ruling with the king. But let's say there's an enemy to the king who wants nothing more than the king's wisdom to be confounded and his kingdom to crumble. And so he does whatever he can to encourage you and persuade you that actually walking through that door, walking through that opportunity is the last thing that you want to do. All he mentions is the painful things that's going to happen when you walk through that. 
the ways that you're going to miss out on certain things. And he goes, if you walk through that, there's so many other doors that you're, that you're missing out on, that you're not stepping through. Why don't you just keep walking past that opportunity? Don't take this moment to step through a door. Why don't you do something else? And he tries to convince you that you'd be better off not doing what the king asks. The enemy is setting a trap for you. Promising you a lot of things, only mentioning the few bad things here. And he's trying to trap you into, or let me say, out of partnership with the king. Living a life on a base level, which is where he lives. So a test can be an opportunity or it can be a trap. And the difference is whether or not the person testing you has your best interest in mind. In fact, both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the forbidden tree. I want to invite you into partnership with me to rule and reign here on this earth. This is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then the enemy comes in to tempt them to eat of the other tree. The enemy seizes this opportunity so that he can twist it and, and lead humans into exile, out of God's garden, and ultimately to death. He turns the test into trap. And so as, after the humans fail, God promises that one day there will be a human who comes who will pass the test and he will defeat the enemy. Okay? So this is the beginning of God's interaction with humankind. It's actually a wonderful, amazing opportunity that is presented to them right off the bat. As the story moves on, we catch up to the life of Abraham. God gives Abraham an opportunity to trust him. Okay? If you remember, we read this last week. This is Genesis chapter 12. God gives Abraham an opportunity to trust him by leaving his family, going to a new land where God's going to restore his blessing to all people. The Lord said, this is Genesis 12, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country and your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. Now, that's a key phrase that we're going to come back to. That I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all families on earth will be blessed through you. In some ways, this is a test. And at first, things go well, but Abraham, obviously, as we discovered last week, quickly fails the test. And the difficult thing about all this is as, as Abraham is hearing this promise from God, he has no land, he has no kids, and honestly, he didn't even know, the, like, know who this God was that he was hearing from. He was a stranger to him. So here's what Abraham decides to do. He decides to provide a son for himself without waiting for God. He figures he can um, speed up God's blessing. So in his own efforts, he abused his servant girl to have a child of his own. Bad idea that back then, bad idea today. <laughs> he thought this child would be the one to carry the hopes and the promises when he died, but he completely overlooked, he completely misunderstood this God. That this God, the God of heaven and earth, always comes through on his word, even when it sounds insane. Ishmael was not God's promise. God had a better way. Ishmael was not the, the hope 
that God was talking about. In fact, outside of God's plan, there is no hope. There's never hope outside of the way that God says to go. God had a better thing in mind because God always promises or provides even when the situation seems insane. So fast forward 13 years, Ishmael's in middle school, Abraham makes another baby, right? Okay, at this point, at this point, Abraham's 99, his wife is 90, which makes these, this birth miraculous. First of all, I don't know a whole lot of 90-year-old women. They're amazing. The ones that I do know, I have so much respect for them. I just don't think they could make a baby. Miracle. This thing that seemed so insane was now true. A baby boy to carry on the line of Abraham that would one day bless the entire world. So, so this boy is the fulfillment of God's promise. God came through on his word even when it seemed impossible. See, God has a way of taking impossible things, though, and making them absolutely insane. That is, beyond our understanding and still providing anyways. And this is what I mean. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to stand and read the first two verses together because they're key. And then you can sit down and I'll, t I'll read the rest of it. Uh, we don't have to read the whole. So why don't you go ahead and stand up with me. Um, we're going to read this together. Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 and 2. Big challenge. Here we go. Ready? Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, who you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him out as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. You can sit down. Good job. The key to this encounter is to see it as a test. Something God has already been in the habit of doing with his people. Okay? And here's the test. Would Abraham be willing to trust God's promise even beyond the point of reason so that God can demonstrate his eternal and undying love to the world? Okay? God had already proven himself before. Abraham's mind is, is taken back to the last time God promised something, but this time the stakes are a lot higher. This time God actually got uniquely personal with Abraham. He said, Abraham, would you be willing to take your son, your only son, who you love so much, it's key language by the way, and sacrifice your one and only son? I hope you notice this, like this is definitely foreshadowing of something that's going to happen in the New Testament. Would you be willing, as you as a father, would you be willing to sacrifice your one and only son of promise who was miraculously born that was foretold? Would you be willing to, who you love so much, would you be willing to sacrifice him for something so much bigger than you? And then the next morning, Abraham does it. He gets up early. He saddles his donkey, took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Okay, so so far what he has is two servants, 
He has a donkey, and he has his son. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering. So he has wood for an altar. He has the flint for the fire. He has the knife. He has the donkey to carry the stuff. He has a service to help him. He has a son. Something glaringly missing here. And he just goes. And on the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servant. So now all he has is the knife, the flint for the fire, the wood, and his son. He said, the boy and I will travel a little bit further. We're going to worship there, and then we'll come right back. Notice this for a moment. This act of crazy, insane obedience. How does Abraham view this? He says it's worship. Now, worship is so much more than what you just do with the fruit of your lips here on a Sunday morning. Worship actually means that God is the one who's the most important thing in your life, not the things he even promised you and that he's delivered to you and that he's given to you, the blessings you have. I will worship God over those things. And he says, I'm going to go and worship and we're going to be right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. And while he, ah, the son of promise is carrying his device of death up a mountain. And while he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them walked together and Isaac turned to Abraham and says, Father, where's the wood and the fire? Or we have the wood and the fire. Where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide. God will provide the lamb. God will. Come on, this is pointing to something. God will provide the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. And so God sees this in advance. And he says, Abraham, I want to do something big with your life. I want to point to my cosmic redemption story. Would you, would you believe enough to take the first step? And when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and he arranged the wood on it and he tied his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And this is the crazy thing. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, steps in to stay the hand of Abraham. Now, you're like, wait a second, how did you get to that point? <laughs> really quick, let me just pause and say, this is why I believe the angel of the Lord is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Here's why. The angel of the Lord, he's seen as God in Genesis 16, 10, and 13. He's seen as man, Genesis 18. Judges 2, he speaks as though he's God. 1 Chronicles 21, 27, he's separate from the Father and obedient to him. Judges 13, he's sent from the Father. Judges 13, continuing on, he speaks with all of God's authority. Zechariah 3, he forgives sins. Judges 5 and 1 Chronicles 21, I spelled that wrong. He acts as judge and avenger of Israel. Judges 6, he accepts worship. 1 Kings 19, he's called a great comforter. Exodus 3, he refers to himself as the great I am. What part of the Trinity shows up in human form and still remains div divine? I can't imagine 
that the angel of the Lord is, and, and this is what many, many scholars agree with, that, that the angel of the Lord is anybody else but what we say, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In other words, revealed in the flesh before he was born through Mary. If you want to talk more about that, we can talk about that later. I get that there's a theological can of worms there, but it is a pretty strong case to make that Jesus himself shows up and he grabs Abraham's hand. The angel of the Lord grabs Abraham's hand and says, no, 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 no. Okay. Don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel says, do not hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me. The angel of the Lord just called himself God again. Just notice that. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Jesus is actually extremely emotionally invested in this moment. Because it's actually about him. And when he stops Abraham from making the sacrifice of his one and only miraculous son of promise, he instead provides the substitute sacrifice in the place of his beloved child. And I hope by now you're beginning to wonder, what is this story actually about? I mean, I see Abraham and Isaac, but is it about them? Okay, so last week, obviously, Genesis 12 through 21, we talked about how, how that account is primarily about God's faithfulness and less about Abraham's faith. This text is not a whole lot different. It just happens to expand your view a little bit about how um, faithful God is. And this is what I mean. The text we see here is not actually about Abraham's faith during the test. This test is about human inability and God's sovereignty in redemption. Abraham's action of faith merely gave the opportunity to prove to him, to prove to Abraham how faithful he actually is. The more, and, and here's what I mean. Okay. Abraham, humanity has failed the test over and over and over and again. And I promised in Genesis 3.15 that I actually would be the one to send somebody who would redeem all of humanity, crush the head of the serpent, it's the seed of a woman, I will be faithful to my promise. And because you were faithful in this test, Abraham, you get to be part of what that is. You get to partner with me in how I redeem humankind. This test was merely designed to reveal God. And the more insane the invitation to faith is in your life, can I say something? The more it's going to be about God and not about you. Because notice what happens next. Abraham, because he's willing to foreshadow the Messiah through his willingness to sacrifice his only son, his miraculous son of promise, God's now going to bless the entire world by sending his one and only son, a miraculous son of promise, to be the substitute sacrifice. Because the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you've obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear to you by my own name, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond the numbers, like beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer cities because of their enemies and through your descendants, all nations of the world will be blessed 
all because you've obeyed me. In other words, the whole point of this test was to give Abraham the opportunity to partner with God in his redemption plan by sending a savior to crush the curse and redeem God's creation. And Abraham is invited to play a part in God's cosmic redemption story if he will live by insane faith. So this is the conclusion of the story. Verse 19. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba where Abraham continued to live. Um, can you imagine how awkward that trip would have been? <laughs> can you imagine what Isaac would have said to his mom? I'm assuming Abraham sleeps on the couch for a year. <laughs> um... How do you tell that story to your friends at school? But also the relief and the joy when they got to the bottom of the mountain and this lesson that they just like blew their mind about who God is. So the writer of Hebrews actually picks up this story and says something very specific, actually reveals to us through divine revelation something we didn't quite get in Genesis 22. Check this out. Hebrews 11 Verse 17, 18, and 19. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. This is why I believe it was a test, right? Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, even though God told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. So first of all, he hears one thing, he sees another thing. It doesn't make sense in his mind. And he says... Verse 19, Abraham responded that it reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. The one and only son of promise being sacrificed. Abraham's like, I still have faith that he could come back to life. Something tells me it would have been three days later. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead because he had already committed in his mind He's, he's dead. I will offer him to the Lord. I, I, God, I will let go of this thing that you've already given me, this promise that you've blessed me with. I've received your blessing in my life, but I am not clutching to it so tightly that I cannot give it back to you. So here's, here's the thing that I see. Abraham came to be persuaded that God is faithful even when the promise seems insane. And so when his faith was put to the test, Abraham gradually began to prove that God can be trusted. You need to see this. And this is how, Ab this is how Abraham came to be persuaded by God. Now, we talked about last week, the definition of faith is being persuaded by God. That's what faith is. When God shows up as a stranger to Abraham in Genesis 12... In fact, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis 12, first couple verses there really quick. I want you to see this. When God showed up to Abraham to call him to a foreign land, he said to Abraham, I want you to go and leave and go to a land that I will show you. Now, why did he say that to Abraham? Why did he say, this is going to be something I'm going to show you? Because he's laying down this precedent of fulfilled promise. Because what happened? 
I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. And he did. He took him to a land that he showed him. Laying down a precedent, a fulfilled promise, so that when later he would ask him to sacrifice an even more valuable possession, the miraculous son of promise that he had given to him, his words that I will show you would be specifically referring back to the last time God said that. So Genesis 12, 1 and 2, he says, I want you to leave your land and go to a land I will show you. Pick it up again in Genesis 22, verse 2. I want you to go sacrifice your son and go to a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham goes, oh, this is insane, but you've come through before. Faith says impossible is right where God begins to be visible. It says that God is always faithful even when the promise seems insane. So here's the thing. I want you to get this, that when my faith comes to be tested, when my faith comes to be tested, you'll see that God can be trusted. That is the cry that says, say I won't. When my faith comes to be tested, you're going to see that God can be trusted. And when you go back through the history of faithful men and women who received God's promise and heard his calling and walked out in faith, you're going to hear this repeated, that I've come to believe that God is faithful, even when his promise, even when his calling, even what his word says doesn't seem to make sense. I've been persuaded that he can be trusted. I've seen him prove himself time and time again. I believe what he says. I will walk in insane faith. Say I won't. You're going to hear them say, God is faithful even when the promise seems insane. So, so when my faith comes to be tested, you'll see that God can be trusted. How do I know this? Because he's persuaded me. And this is a great thing to read about in the Bible. In fact, it's fun to read about stories like this in Christian history. Or in news reports about Christians living somewhere else. But it gets real when you hear from God. Because then you can't just pass it off anymore. You can't just pretend you didn't hear what God said. You can't just receive revelation from God, sense his calling on your life and do nothing about it. God's call comes with a choice. The choice to live inside of my own small-minded, selfish pride. That I'm bigger than God, my way is better than his, and I know better. Or, 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 to hear the word of God to believe the word of God and to partner with him in what he's up to that's bigger than me and I don't quite understand it but I do know him and so this opportunity of faith that he's led me to I, I, don't, I don't see what this is in fact it hurts in fact walking across this threshold means I'm actually going to have to release the things he's already blessed me with. And, and that's just the best part of it. You know, in addition, the things that selfishly I'm just clinging to. God, I, I, I actually trust you more than these things I'm holding on to. 
And when God speaks to you, it's very possible that he will ask you to move by faith into an act that only God can accomplish, but he's wanting to accomplish through your obedience. Faith says impossible is right where God begins to be gloriously visible. I don't see all the time the glory of God and just the things that make sense in your life. What I see, when I see the glory of God, the beauty of God's redemption is when you have moved in a way that makes no sense and God still comes through. I'm like, that was only God. You have an amazing opportunity to partner with God. But just like Abraham and everybody in the Old Testament, you're not exactly that qualified. Which brings us to Jesus. Jesus says every single one of us is going to face our own, genera- our, own, our own version of a test. And without him inside of us, the one who perfectly passed the test... This won't be possible. And so what I want to do is I want to help you anticipate the test. I want to help you anticipate the test and pass. These are three things that are going to help you pass the testing and the proving of your faith. Okay? Three three ways. It is not the only things, but these are the, the, the things that I notice. First, you're going to need to let go to open your hands, to surrender the things you love to God. God is calling each of us into the grand and beautiful experience of his redemption, but it's only given to those. The experience is only available to those who trust God enough to open their hands and lay it all down, even the blessings he's given to you in the first place. I understand that you fear the unknown because you fear loss. But even the good gifts that God has given to you need to be held with an open hand lest they threaten to replace the position of God in your heart as the most important. The gift will never be more important than the giver. And the gift can be multiplied. The gift can be given again. The gift can be resurrected. let go. Give God the opportunity to demonstrate how good he is and how much better his plan is than yours. See, selfish idolatry is one of the biggest barriers to faith. It's really hard to lift your hands in worship when you're clutching so tightly to the things around you. Don't make God's gift the object of worship. Make it an opportunity for worship. So let go. Number two, let God. Let God take care of the hurt. Let God take care of the fear, the rejection, your future, your family, your finances, your marriage, your life. Let God take care of you. Maybe you need to start simply by letting God in. Notice, notice what the Apostle Paul says about Abraham. This is Romans chapter 4. Um, Romans chapter 4, I'm just going to read a few verses. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. 
Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. God, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it, because it can't. The only way to avoid breaking law is to have no law to break. I'm going to skip down to verse 23. And when God counted Abraham as righteous, if you remember, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteousness. When God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to us to die because of our sins. And then he was raised to life to make us right with God. And you've been holding on to your own way for so long, believing the lie that God isn't out there, or he doesn't care, or you're too far gone, but he's right here, right now, today, giving you an opportunity to let go of those things that are holding you back and receive the promise of, of rightness with God and forgiveness and new life. But you need to let God love you like that. You need to let go, and then you need to let God love you. And for some of you, this is a whole lot harder than it sounds. You, you've been abused by an aggressive father or ignored by a passive father. And so to hear the concept of God as your father wanting to invite you into partnership with him, to rule and reign with him, to, to receive his love sounds actually kind of scary. But I need to remind you that God is not like any other earthly father. That he has never been careless with your heart. He has always been faithful. He's gentle. He's fierce to your uh, defense. He's inviting you into an adventure that your soul is craving. But you need to let God love you. You also need to let God lead you. Faith is not creating your own plan and praying really hard to overcome God's reluctance so that he kind of gets, it, gets with the program and sees it your way. That's not faith. Okay? When you live by faith, you're living his way. It's not his show anymore. There is a cost to faith, yes. And part of the cost is giving up your plans for your life and living his way. And for some of you, you've been attaching God to your plans. You go to church on Sunday, you wear a cross necklace. Um, you, you like but would the world look at your life and see the story of God's glory? Or would they just get another glimpse of you? I think it's time we stop playing God and let him do his job. He's actually really good at it. So let go, let God, and then let's go. Come on, let's go. This is what I mean. This is important to realize. We're not just reviewing Abraham's story because it's an inspiring tale with helpful principles. That's not what we're here. God is speaking through the writer of Hebrews to make a point to followers of Jesus that there's a way that you need to live if you're going to be pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible to please God without faith. You want to please God with your life? Impossible. Unless you live by faith. That is, you live your life as God is real. His word is your authority. And he will come through on his word even when it seems insane. You please God you, when you live within his call on your life. Even when it's beyond your understanding. 
Church, please realize that God is doing something in northern Michigan that is so much bigger than your personal brand or your safety bubble. He's building his kingdom, and it's bigger than you, and it's often outside of your safety bubble. And this is where insane faith begins to take shape. When you've let go and surrendered to God, and you, and you, and you let God love you, and you let him lead you and lord you, and you're free to say, God, I trust you. I'm based on my life on you. I, I'm using every ounce of energy for you. I'm, every resource is, is, is for your glory. And you've led me up until this point. You've never failed me. You've always satisfied me. You've come through on your word. You deliver in ways that I couldn't even, even imagine myself. And you've brought me to this point of faith. But that is insane. But I do not dare worship the things you've given me up until this point over you. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. When you're living like that, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to see spiritual authority on your life. I'm going to see chains broken. I'm going to see mountains moved in your life. But not only that, guys, I have big faith for what God is going to do in and through this church. We are going to see relationships healed. We are going to see faith rebuilt. We are going to see the needy not only fed, but given the ability to get back up feet again. We're going to see the spiritually blessed, blessing the world and the church with what God's already deposited in their lives. We are going to see the stolen redeemed. We are going to see the hurting healed. We are going to see addictions broken. We are going to see oppression uh, lifted. We're going to see strongholds torn down. Our vision is going to Stored. The lost is going to be found. I believe we are going to see thousands more saved and baptized as a result of this church. Y'all, we are not fading out. We're just getting started again. We're excited about the new things that God has in store with this church. 2020 happened. 2021 happened. You see what happened, okay? You see where people went. You're still here. And in many ways, it feels like we're a brand new church. This is not the time for understandable criticism. This is not the time for underutilized resources or underwhelming vision. This is the time for insane faith that sees the vision of God and trusts his heart for this region and believes his capability to use us to build his kingdom right here in the communities around us. This is the time for insane faith. This is the time to go outside of our understanding. To remain in God's calling. Guys, I believe my God. I believe his word is true. I will see brighter days. I will be a heart healer and a hope dealer. I will work for the service of my king in this region and in our world. I will be a beacon of light in the darkness. I will do greater things. I will live as if everything Jesus said is true and is authoritative over my life. I will live outside of my understanding, remaining in his calling. I will live by faith. Say I won't. Say I won't. And this is so inspiring to hear and talk about on a Sunday morning. Here's the challenge, though. Are you willing to live by faith tomorrow at work? Are you willing to live by faith Tuesday afternoon with your kids? Are you willing to live by faith Friday when temptation hits? Are you willing to live by faith this weekend to give up your comfort and chase his calling, to move outside of your understanding, to stay within what he's called you to do?
Here's the point. God is always faithful, even when the call sounds insane. But when your faith comes to be tested, this is your opportunity to prove that he can be trusted. Let's be the people who live by insane faith. Heavenly Father, we, we want to give this moment to you and trust that you are bigger and wiser than what our small-minded view of this life could be. Lord, help us to live with insane faith because we know who you are and we know we can live based on your word. Give us the courage to go beyond our understanding, God. Amen.